The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Talk with Mitch LaFon and joining me on this episode, it is singer-songwriter Richard Mark. He's got a new show over here at Podcast One called Song Talks, so we talk about that. We also look back on his history, talk about his dad and all kinds of other wonderful things. On the other side of the Richard Marks interview, we're going for a double-double today. I have got Ron Bumblefoot Thal. Some of you may know him from his time spent in Guns N' Roses. He has a new band called Art of Anarchy. They have now uh, hired former Creed singer Scott Stapp, and they have a new album called The Madness. So we talk about that and my history with Ron, because we've known each other for uh, for many years. But uh, before we get into that, um, you know, last week we had Bill Leverty of Firehouse read the news, and so I so much enjoyed that that I asked Bill to do it again. So let's get this episode started with some rock news. And here is the one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire from Firehouse, Mr. Bill Leverty. Hey, thanks, Mitch. Here's the rock news. Classic Canadian rockers Honeymoon Suite of New Girl Now and Feel It Again fame are back with a brand new album called Hands Up. It's their first new album since their Clifton Hill disc, which they put out in 2008. Now, Firehouse drummer Michael Foster and myself got to work with the band on their 2013 cover of the Kiss classic, Reason to Live, for the A World with Heroes tribute album. And for those of you who aren't familiar with A World with Heroes, this is the greatest Kiss tribute album of all time, where our leader, world-renowned rock journalist and photographer Mitch LaFond, put dozens of musicians and singers together from around the world to raise money for a hospice in Montreal. And Honeymoon Suite's version of A Reason to Live really is a standout track on that album, and now they're out with a new album. It's called Heads Up. Also in the news, Warrant, my brothers. They are set to release their new album, Louder, Harder, Faster. It's their second album with vocalist Robert Mason and the first since 2011's Rockaholic. Guitarist Derek Turner says of Louder, Harder, Faster, love it or hate it, it's the real deal. 100% pure melodic hard rock handcrafted by five musicians who dedicated their lives to music when they were just little kids with big dreams. The album was produced by Jeff Pielsen, who you guys know as the original bassist for Dokken and also now as the bassist for Foreigner. He's a great producer as well. I've heard a lot of songs off this album. It's a great album and one you'll definitely want to have in your collection. Go see them live this summer. They're going to be out all summer long, and hopefully Firehouse will get a few dates with them. All right, back to you, Mitch. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. And uh, thank you to Bill Leverty for those uh, quick news updates. But he did, of course, forget one very important thing. He himself, Bill Leverty of Firehouse, has new music 
over at Leverty.com. His new single is called You're a Natural, so please head over to Leverty.com and check that out. During his little news piece, he mentioned Honeymoon Suite. Their new album is Hands Up. It is out now, available everywhere from iTunes to Amazon to wherever you can get physical and digital music these days. The album is a sweet, sweet slice of melodic rock. I sat down with guitarist Derry Green from the band. Uh, that'll be upcoming very, very soon here on Rock Talks with Mitch LaFon. So do stick around and check out that interview. And while we're checking out stuff, please head over to Twitter and check me out at Mitch LaFon. Hopefully you will find something there that you like. You can also just Google, uh, use the Google, and uh, find more stuff about Mitch LaFon. And now let's get to our first guest on this episode. It is singer-songwriter Richard Marks. He has had a storied career from being discovered, if that's the proper word for it, by Lionel Richie, to working in conjunction with his dad on jingles and all kinds of stuff. He has a new show here on Podcast One called Song Talks with Richard Marks. If you haven't checked that out, you are doing yourself a great disservice. I have checked it out. And it is absolutely compelling and fascinating, which you, you can't really ask for more in a show. It just, it, just, it's, it just brings you in. It sucks you in. So it's really must. It's appointment listening, as we call it here in the uh, podcast world. So without further ado, here is the one, the only, the exceptionally affable Richard Marks. We are speaking with singer-songwriter Richard Marks. Uh, Richard, just a, a great, great pleasure to, to talk to you, by the way. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah. Thanks, My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this all week. Now, I've been interviewing people for, you know, 25 years now, but th this one was like, yeah, this is going to be cool. This will be fun. Oh, that's cool, man. And so you've got a new show over at Podcast One called Song Talks. So let, let's start with that. Uh, what is the concept of the show? If somebody's listening to me and they say, oh, I'm going to go check that out, what are they going to hear? Well, it, was, it, it began actually about a year ago with this idea that I had to do a show with songwriters who had written iconic songs. Not, you know, and no disrespect to any of the songwriters who've written, you know, hit song after hit song, but not just a hit song, but a song that, at least one song that everybody on the planet knows. And I've just, you know, because I've been around long enough, I've run across, you know, quite a few people who've written those kind of songs. And I thought it would be interesting to just, you know, sit and talk to those songwriters about the etymology of those songs and how they came to be. And, but as I started to, uh, to flesh this whole thing out a little bit, it, it narrowed the window quite a bit, you know, for guests. And so when I got with the Podcast One people, they said, hey, you know, how could we open this up? And then all of a sudden I thought, you know, it'd be kind of cool to talk. To, yeah, let's talk to songwriters who've written, you know, songs that are the soundtrack to people's lives. But let's just talk to any number of people and celebrities in different, you know, shapes and sizes about the, the songs that impacted their lives. So it's, you know, in the dozen or so that I've recorded so far, it's everybody from people like Kenny Loggins who, you know, have written more than one of those kind of songs, to Jane Lynch, who is a really good singer, but really known as an actress and comedian. So, um, and a bunch of people in between. Uh, so it's been a really, it's been really fun for me because I just, at this point, Mitch, you know, it's really fun for me to just do different stuff than I've done before. And so I'm, I'm sort of wading into a little bit of new waters in this, with the show and I'm having a blast. Yeah. And, and, and of course you have written for 
almost everybody, from Kenny Rogers to Vixen. You wrote the um, Surrender to Me that Robin Zander and Ann Wilson did on Tequila Sunrise, one of my favorite songs of all time. Just, oh, I, thanks, man. I wrote that with a Montreal boy named Ross Vanelli, Gino's brother. Oh, there you go. Uh, black car, yeah. uh, black, black car, black cars, right? Black cars. Black cars. Yeah, Gino Vanelli. He was, he's a badass. Yeah, he really is. And, and that song is just great. So, talk to me a little bit then about your songwriting style because you know you're doing all kinds of different stuff with Fee Way Below the Tubes, which is a little more you know left of center. Vixen, which was very much hair metal and right was what empty. Uh, how do you approach it? Because you come from this, your dad owned a jingles company. Let's hear how you approach a song. Well, I definitely got it from the the genes. You know, my my mom was and is still at 82 a really great singer. Um, but my dad, um, he started out as a jazz pianist, was not a singer, but he, he uh, kind of moved away from the jazz world in the early 60s and, and f- discovered that he had a knack for writing really catchy melodies. And what we now know as the jingle business was just starting to happen. Um, you know, television was at a point where advertising and uh, radio and TV commercials were starting to become, you know, as popular as hit songs. And the catchier the tune that went along with the slogan, the more memorable it was, and it helped the sales of whatever product that was. And my dad just had this amazing ability to craft these really catchy tunes in 30 seconds or 60 seconds, you know, whereas songwriters like me, we have the luxury of four minutes or five minutes. Um, and so it was pretty amazing to, to watch my dad. You know, I grew up watching him compose every, you know, every day or every night he would compose the next day's work and he would go into the studio. He, he arranged them, he produced them, he played on them. He was a one man operation. He had a great team and a great company, but, he did the lion's share of all the heavy lifting, and and he became the biggest jingle writer producer ever, and for like twenty years, over twenty years. And when I uh, started songwriting, I found that I had this. Uh, I didn't. I, I never was trying to to be to write memorable melodies. They just that's just what kind of came out of me, and. And so it just lent itself, my, my songwriting lent itself to a lot of different genres because I've listened to every kind of music. And I, to this day, I, I think I'm a student of music. And, and so I've, I love every kind of music. And so there's no reason, I've never felt intimidated by any genre. You know? So I, I wrote Josh Groban's first hit song, To Where You Are, just by listening to a bunch of classical and, and sort of opera-ish music and thinking, how can I make that into a pop song um you know i grew up loving rock music so working with bands from vixen to the tubes right up to daughtry and lifehouse that that was really a sweet spot for me too was effortless um and i started at rock radio as an artist as well so um you know right down to the really beautiful ballads pop mu- the pop songs and to country music which i am a huge fan of and um and i've done a tremendous amount of work in that genre as well so you know as a writer dude for me it's just been and continues to be a blast because i never get bored you know i I go from writing with or for one kind of artist into somebody completely different and as a producer same thing so it's um you know i can't stress how lucky i feel to to still you know be so psyched to make music and write 
music, even though nobody buys music anymore. It's it's all I know how to do, so I'm going to keep doing it. Do you ever write a song and then, you know, I don't want to, well, it's just for the lack of, you know, to make it easy, sort of give it away, but you, you, give it, you present it to an art or other artist. Do you ever think to yourself, wow, I should have held on to that one? Or so how, how do you sort of decide which ones go in the Richard pile and which one goes into the, I'm giving it to this guy pile, this other person pile? Um, well, I mean, the short answer to the first part of your question is no, I never really think about it. I never, I've never given a song to somebody else and regretted it. Um, you know, I, I do find that the songs that I record, that I write for myself, are, are much more personal. They're much more my point of view or, you know, my purging of whatever emotion or, or thoughts. So it's, you know, it's my personal, it's more like my journal, lyrically. Um, when I'm writing a song with or for another artist, it's not about me and what I want to say. It's about what they want to say. And so it really is sort of like a, it's a completely different hat to wear. And, and if I go and, you know, I mean, I've written so many songs with other people or for other people that I love, like Long Hot Summer for Keith Urban is one of my favorites. You know, that was just a few years ago. And I wouldn't have had a hit with Long Hot Summer, but I can enjoy having a hit by Keith Urban and enjoy the process of writing that song and seeing it, you know, and in that case, he and uh, the great Dan Huff, the producer Dan Huff, made this incredible record of it. So I didn't, I just wrote the song with Keith, and then the next thing I knew, it was this incredible record that was, you know, number one on the country charts. And I've had, you know, quite a few experiences like that. No, I just celebrate it all, you know. Um, when the Sync song, This I Promise You, became so huge, there were people initially, actually, that thought it sounded like me. You know, Justin Timberlake's you know, first couple lines of that song. In fact, Justin told me, like, soon after the song became a hit, Justin said, I sent the song to my dad to, to say, hey, here's a new track that we're going to release. And my dad said, hey, I love the song, but why is Richard Marx singing the first verse? <laughs> so, so, I mean, even that, a song like that, maybe I would have had a hit with it, but it wasn't even a thought, Mitch. It was like, I got a chance to go and write and produce a song for NSYNC. That's, that's all I was thinking about. I don't, and I also just feel like I'm going to write a thousand more songs. You know, there's always another song. I don't get too precious about any one. Being a Canadian boy here, I, I want to know, you, you've put out songs with Rock Voisin. How did you meet up or hook up with Rock Voisin? And, you know, you have Chaque Jour de Ta Vie that came out. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about that, because you've also written for Laura Fabienne two songs in French, Je vivrai au loin de là-bas. Do you actually write the songs in French, or do they come in English and then they're translated? Talk to me about writing in an other language other than English. Well, my no, my French is so uh, so barbaric, um, and so no, I never wrote w in French or in any other language. Um, uh, but what would happen is, like in the case of of Lara, I met her through um, an old friend of mine who's a great guitar player who's worked with her a lot, named Bruce Geich. And um, and Lara and I just hit it off. You know, we really we loved hanging out together, and we ended up singing something together, and. And her career was, you know, just starting to really blossom. And, and so I wrote a song that I think she just, um, she just recorded the so a song that I had written with my friend Bruce. And then I got together with her uh, in Montreal to write together. And we, we did some work together. We ended up doing a duet of, a, of that song, Surrender to Me, that was from the Tequila Sunrise album. I did it as a duet with Lara, um, 
on one of the versions of an album of mine, and we did it on TV together. And and Rock Voisin was a similar thing. It was, um, as I recall, it was a record executive that reached out to me and said, you know, we're really trying to break this very successful um, French-Canadian artist in, in the U.S. And, and Rock came down to L.A. and spent a good you know year here making a record and making the rounds. And it didn't really happen for him here, but we hung out. We spent some time together. We wrote a couple of songs. I produced one or two on, on that album, and uh, and we did that duet together. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it was no different than any other situation where either the artist or the artist's manager or some record executive reaches out to me or one of my people in my camp and says, hey, what about, you know, Richard getting together with this person? Or um, it, it just sort of happens really really organically that way. I mean, it not, it's not really organic because, you know, people are trying to put it together. Um, but I have found that, and I, you didn't ask this question, but it's a, it's an addendum. I've found over the years that the artists that I want to work with, that I reach out to, that I've made a point to court, you know, and like go after to work with them, those situations have either not happened at all or they've happened, but they haven't been successful or fun or it just never felt you know right and every time i've worked with an ar- another artist where it's been fun or successful it's been them coming to me so i stopped years ago i stopped pursuing anybody you know i just i just wait and hope for the phone to ring and when it does i go okay great that sounds good let's do that do you accept sort of every challenge or are there some artists that come to you and say we'd love you to write a song and you just sort of think yeah, I just, that, that's just not going to work. There, I just don't see how my songwriting is going to fit into your group. Or do you sort of give it a shot with anybody and just say, all right, let's see what we got? Um, no, there, t- there have been times when I've just heard the, the music and either it's just not appealed to me at all and I don't want to spend my time working with, you know, and not to say that millions of other people might not love that artist or the, what they're, the music that they're making, but it just doesn't do anything for me. And I don't want to work, I don't want to make music with someone whose music I don't admire. I, but there have also been times when I've, I've liked something, but I, I, a perfect example is, um, and you're going to give me so much grief for this, as did my friends, but right. you, years ago, a friend of mine in Nashville, I had dinner with him, and he had just started his own record company. He'd come from being a really successful radio promotion guy and had, had come up through the ranks and really good guy. And he started his own label, and he signed a young teenage girl to kind of launch his 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 label and, and we had dinner and he took me back to the office and he played me a couple of her demos and he said you know would you be interested in writing with her and I said dude she's like 16 and I just I don't what am I going to write with a 16 year old girl you know and I said you know I wish you luck with her but I, it's just not something I want to be involved with and it was Taylor Swift well there's 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 so, always you can always uh, make up for it now and throw the invitation out there. Well, yeah, of course, but you know, at this point, Taylor Swift, <laughs> the last person's help she needs is mine, you know. Right. Lionel Richie, that, yeah. that's the story. You know, you, you had this demo tape, he, it got to him somehow, and he phones you. Walk me through that again, in, in the sense that, was it really sort of that simple, or is that sort of a, a more played-up version of what really happened? No, in fact, the, the version that I that I started to, um, you know, when I first started my career and, and was doing interviews and the story that I told is actually a somewhat, um, 
dumbed-down version in that, yes, it was very simple. In retrospect, it was very simple. Um, it was a friend of mine who I knew from high school who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who was working with the Commodores. And Lionel was just leaving the Commodores at that time to launch his solo career. And I had just written my first four or five songs ever. I was, you know, junior in high school or senior in high school, maybe starting my senior year. And the the tape of my songs went from my friend to the guy to the guy to the other guy. To, and, and sure enough, Lionel Richie was handed the cassette and listened to it. And my phone number was on the back, written on the back. And he called me up and he said, you know, dude, I really like your songwriting. You should, what are you plan? What are you planning to do? And he just called me to encourage me. Basically. He didn't, he didn't say, Hey, I have a job for you or anything like that. He just was, was kind enough and gracious enough to call this kid that he didn't know and say, you know, I hear a lot of tapes and most of them suck and yours is really good. And if these are your first four or five songs, man, you're you're going to be great. You're going to have a great career. You should move to L.A. And he was just encouraging. And he was, you know, one of the biggest humans in the music business at the time. So it really did happen as simply as that. You know, a couple of weeks went by. I got the phone call from Lionel. I, I finished high school. I moved to L.A. He invited me to come to the studio. He's making his first out solo album by that point. And he ended up hiring me as a background singer, um, to sing on several songs on his first album. And I ended up singing on a couple other albums as well of his. And then right after that, he recommended me as a background singer to Kenny Rogers. And through that background vocal job, I ended up writing three songs on the album that Kenny Rogers was making, just because I was either dumb enough or bold enough or both to, as the background singer for hire, go up to their artist, Kenny Rogers, and say, hey, I've got some songs. You know, and instead of, firing me and kicking me out of the studio, he listened to the songs and liked them and recorded them. Um, but the part that I'm leaving out, I mean, this is really important now, Mitch, because it's, it's, right. um, it's a narrative that, that I not only got lost along the way, but I don't think I was really being truthful with myself back when I started to tell this story. The story that I always told was that when Lionel Richie called me at 18, I couldn't believe it. And that's really not true. The minute that I gave my cassette to my friend and he said that there was even the most remote possibility that Lionel Richie would hear the tape, I knew Lionel Richie was going to call me. I put that out into the ether. I put that out. I put that thought out into the universe and into the world. Not Lionel Richie's never going to call me. The thoughts that I put out were, of course Lionel Richie's going to call me. And of course Lionel Richie called me. And I don't mean that in any cocky way at all. I mean it to to emphasize that what you think of the most is what will happen. So if I was the kind of person that just was always a naysayer, you would not be interviewing me. No one would have. You know, I would have just toiled and yeah. I would have suffered the fate that I, that I wished for myself, you know. Um, but, you know, I agree I think with that, that because... Uh, I've spoken to many artists over the year, and they all have this confidence. Uh, and, and it's not a cockiness. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody yeah. else will. A- yeah. And, of course, you're going to think, yeah, I've written something good, and people are going to like this. You know, uh, it just seems to make sense. Uh, is that something, though, that you've 
given yourself as, as, as a personal mission to, to, to sort of pay it back or pay it forward, have you ever contacted a, a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old and said, hey, you know what, I like what you're doing here, let's work on it, or we haven't done that yet? No, I have. I have done okay. that, and I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of up-and-coming artists. Um, I've yet to have the experience of, you know, I hate the word discovering, because that's a really cocky word. Uh, all these people that say, I discovered Josh Groban, I discovered this person. I, no, you didn't. Um, you just got them to the next point, you know, to the next level. Um, so I've yet to, but I've yet to find someone who was really sort of obscure, and it's still in obscurity, and and walk them through to great success. I have I've jumped on the train early on. I have certainly found people toiling in obscurity and gotten them to the next step, but it just hasn't it hasn't blown up, you know. So, but but I had I've had great experiences working with really young singer songwriters who I learned a great deal from. You know, forget what what I might have taught them what they got from me. I, I always learn something from everybody that I work with. Um, so that's something that's on my wish list, you know, and it, it will, I know it will happen, but, um, but no, I mean, the other version of what you're asking is, yeah, I, even now people on Instagram or, you know, on social media will send links sometimes. They'll, you know, cause back in the day, it was like trying to send a fan letter to the management company. It's, ne- it's like the abyss. Now, if I look at my Twitter feed, I might see a post, you know, uh, to, to me from someone, and I'll listen to it. And there've been many times when I'll send them a, a, a message and just say, you know, wow, your voice is great. You keep singing, or, you know, what an amazing song, or, you know, whatever. Any encouragement I can give people that I think are good is, you know, certainly worth doing. Yeah, I think so. Um, if I can just go back to to the beginning here for a second, with your father being a successful jingle writer and knowing how to get you know, the words in there that are going to stick in people's minds and stuff. Did he ever look at your early songs and offer guidance? Or did you ever sort of commiserate with him and say, okay, Dad, how do I get this to stick in people's head? Was he at all active in guiding you or teaching you how to write songs? No, not really teaching me. But he, he was a great sounding board for me, obviously, because he, I, I respected no one more than him musically. I respected no one more than him in terms of work ethic, which is why, you know, one thing that no one can say about me is that I'm a flake, you know, in in 30-something years. Um, And no, but he he made a point to say, look, you know, what you're doing is not what I do. I don't write songs. It's a very different animal. But he he was really good at helping, um, like one of the things that he, that he, did for me really early on and some people might look at this as saying it was too too critical or whatever but you know i think it was like my seventh song or eighth song that i had completed and i went and made a demo of it and i was so excited and i played it for my dad and he said it's good it was good the first time you wrote it four songs ago and i went what do you mean he said it's the same song same chords kind of the same melody kind of the same subject matter and it took me you know, like 10 seconds to not, you know, cover up like a boxer and go, what, you know, what are you, whoa, why are you beat? But I, I appreciated it because I went, he's absolutely right. It's the same song. I'm just rewriting the same song. And that was such a great lesson for me because it made me always watchdog that, you know, 
and and always try to not repeat myself, which is a very difficult thing when you've been right when you've written thousands of songs. And there are definitely you know phrases or channels that that sound similar, but I I, I really focus on that because of my dad and and the greatest single uh, advice and and thing that my dad gave me creatively was as you can imagine, Mitch, in the jingle business there was no time to find your inspiration. There was no time to find a muse. It was like, if you don't nail this McDonald's commercial tonight, the next guy's going to get the gig, you know? And so my dad could never afford writer's block. He never had it. He couldn't, he couldn't have it. And after like a year out in LA, I was, you know, I was, I was singing on Lionel's record and I was, but I was writing songs and writing songs. And then all of a sudden I just hit this dry spell and I had what I, what everybody calls writer's block. And I called my dad thinking that he would give me this really, um, sensitive, uh, take on it and give me great words of wisdoms and, and comfort me. And, and my dad said, what are you talking about? What you, there's no such <laughs> thing. There's no such thing as writer's block. It's all BS. And I said, what do you mean? He said, what did you go out there to do, Richard? And I said, well, to write songs. He goes, then write songs. He said, look, you have to write something. And you might write a complete piece of crap tomorrow. But I guarantee you that somewhere in that piece of crap are four bars or eight bars that are actually pretty good. And you'll find them and you'll build on that. But if you just go, I have writer's block, and you just then don't write, then you, you're a loser. And it was, oh my God, Mitch, it was the, I've never had writer's block after that. It was like, just write, just write something and you'll find it. You'll, you'll find your way to the good stuff. Is there, I guess, times then where you'll write like five songs, 10 songs, 16 songs, and you just go, oh, there's nothing. And then you get to that 17th song and you go, that's the one. That's the one I'm keeping. I don't, I don't ever know what the one is. Okay. I, I've never been able to pick every, every hit song of mine I've gone you're kidding me. Not like I didn't like it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised every time whatever song it is is a big hit. And I have offered songs that I wrote that, I, that became huge hits for me. I've offered them to other artists before. I have decided, oh, I'm not going to record that song only to have to be talked into it by friends of mine or you know, people I'm working with. I am not a, judge, a good judge of commerciality for, for myself or anyone else. And I never had that. That's why I'd never be an A&R guy. I, I would be a horrible A&R guy, which is redundant because they're all horrible. But um, Shh, Can't no, say that too it, loud. <laughs> well, I can say that to whoever's listening. Right. True. Um, before we run out of time, I just want to get to repeat Offender. It hit number one on Billboard, on the pop charts. Big album for you. It, you know, I don't want to call it the breakthrough because the first album you know, was top ten as well. Yeah. But looking back on that period and, and, re, and repeat offender, what was it like? You know, you, you know you've been working at, at Jingles with your dad since the age of five. You had Lionel Richie discovered you. The first album went to... What was that like, that moment that you heard, okay, I've now hit the apex. I am now number one in the country. Uh, another good question for me to answer in terms of the perspective that I have about it now. I... Um, I I got divorced a few years ago, three or four years ago, and and I started soon after I started dating uh, my wife now Daisy, and and in my early courtship days, 
with Daisy, I was still touring a bit, and so a lot of it was on the phone. We were talking on the phone a lot. We would talk for hours like teenagers, you know. And this one night, I was standing outside of a gig in Detroit, and she said, you know, I've been meaning to ask you, all these hit songs that you've written, and, and you know, you had a number one album, and you had this, and you had this great moment. I've, I've been wanting to ask you, how did you celebrate those? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, like, for instance, and she named the example that you just mentioned. She said, when, when that, you had an album that went to number one, Repeat Offender, what, how did you celebrate? I said, well, I didn't celebrate. I was on the road. I was in Australia doing a tour. She said, what do you mean you didn't celebrate? I said, I didn't celebrate. It was like, okay, that's awesome, but what's next? We, how do we keep it number one? How do we get the next album to number one? What's the next single going to be? You know, how can we extend the tour in Australia? It was always, how can we do better? How can I do better? And I never took a minute to celebrate my success. And so I'm doing it now. So the, the answer is that back then it was just a blur of focus and work. I, I, and I, I guess luckily I, I, I was not um, a man interested in debauchery. You know, I was married. I probably maybe even had a kid by the time. Or no, it was right after repeat offender and I became a father. But I was just not a party guy. You know, I was, uh, I was, when I was on the road... I was focused on doing the best shows I could do, and I was working, you know, 200 shows a year. And in between, I was making albums and writing songs for other people and producing this person. And so I was just work, 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 focus, 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 focus. And I have great success to show for it, but I didn't have a whole lot of fun. And so this, what I call the back nine of my life and my career, I'm anything. I, ce- I celebrate everything. Like the the most, I'll sell it. Like if I write a new song, I'll go. We're going to dinner. <laughs> Let's go to a beautiful restaurant. I wrote a new song today. Uh, I wish I had a little bit of that um, perspective, you know, when during the heyday. Um, but it was just one ten-year blur of work. But you know, it, it is maybe a one-year or a ten-year blur. But at the same time, it does take focus to succeed and if you get too distracted again we might not be talking today because you might not have been so successful so yeah, it's a, and it's been, yin and yang right of course. Uh, and then uh, we'll finish with this the last album Beautiful Goodbye 2014 um, where are we in terms of a new album or new songs or new Christmas album or new compilation or, or new anything there's a, there's a bunch of new songs and I'm just not sure what form they're going to take because I don't I really believe now more than ever, and especially for anybody over 35 um, that makes music, the album as we knew it is long dead and buried. Uh, I know that for me, and I still, you know, I'm still a fan of music. I don't sit and listen to a whole album. I, and I, I lived my whole life looking forward to doing that. We have the world has become so completely ADD that. And and the, the the habits of music consumption are just so markedly different that for me, I think it's really just a matter of pulling the trigger and going, hey, I wrote a new song, I'm going to go in, I'm going to make a, a record of it, and I'm going to put it out. There's no album, there's no... T- when people say, are you on tour? I always go, I don't tour, I just do shows. I do a bunch of shows all year long. They're, I'm not promoting anything like the old days, where I, it was the repeat offender tour, the paid vacation tour, there's none of that anymore. It's 
I go out because I'm blessed that there's an audience out there around the world that will show up for me to just sing whatever I sing. And I always sing, you know, but the bulk of the hits because I love singing the hits. Um, and I'll always put a couple of new songs in the show too because I don't want people to think in the years since they've seen me, I'm just home playing, you know, video games. Um, but I don't know. I don't know, Mitch. I think it's probably going to be just, hey, I've got a new song out. Hey, there's a new song on iTunes. Or, hey, there's a new song for free on my website. Or, hey, here's a, here's a, you know, a demo. Or here's a, just me and a guitar on this new song. I think that that's the way the music is going to get consumed at this point. And the, um, the commerce part of the music business for me is going to be touring and, you know, doing shows and, and also just sort of getting, hopefully getting my hands dirty with some other kinds of projects that, that will make me use some of my other talents, you know, sort of behind the scenes. And and that doesn't even necessarily mean songwriting and producing. It just means helping and guiding people and uh, coming up with fresh ideas to keep it interesting. And it does seem to me, though, that we sort of gone full circle on the music business. If you look at the 50s and 60s, it was about live shows and getting to the Cavern Club and getting to this place. Yeah. And then the 70s, especially the 80s, became about radio hits, radio hits, MTV hits, MTV hits. And I think now we're just back to where I, th I think where we should be, where you write a song and you present it to an audience. And that, to yeah. me, seems what music is supposed to be about, you know, so. Yeah, the problem, though, is, I mean, not to not to leave it on a negative, but the problem, you know, I have three amazingly talented sons who are, right. you know, trying to make it in the music business. And unfortunately, it is near impossible to make a living as a songwriter anymore because the 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 way things have, have been allowed to go down uh, and the way, um, the, the, the way that the public has, over the last five, especially five or six years, have sort of just assumed that a song has no value, that it's just free. Everything's free. Um, that's a problem. And, and I th I'll be curious to see in the next couple of years if new music starts to become less and less and less because, you know, the people that we're going to count on to to make new music are going to go, I can't make a living doing this. They're going, i got to go do something else. That's going to be a real drag. That's why I think... You know, it's time now. Somebody's got to come up, and somebody's way smarter than me needs to come up with a way to make it fair again, um, so that songwriters can be, um, you know, compensated for their art, for for their work. And I hope that that happens. Yeah, I do too. And I, I really don't know how they're going to monetize it. All I see is, you know, concerts and and T-shirts because they're. Yeah, the problem is, you see, I'm not worried about guys like me. I'm not worried about me or Brian Adams or right. Billy Joel or any of those guys because we have a catalog of hits. That we can, we have a career to go do, sell T-shirts and, and concert tickets on. I'm worried about guys like my sons who don't, who don't have the opportunity to create a catalog because the business is so twisted that you 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 don't know what's the chicken or the egg anymore, and it's it's a little scary, especially. You know, all nepotism aside, when when my sons, all three of them, are playing me music that they're doing, I'm going, oh my god, it's just brilliant it's so good and i just want people to hear it but so then what kind of advice can you offer them just hang in there to just uh, you know what do you say yeah you i mean it's it's yeah. uh, it's a good question and we talk about it you know pretty frequently we have these dinners and we sit around and talk about it and 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 i say look you know it's you're going to have to come up with sort of your version of when i was 
younger than you even, and I was trying to get going. I was trying to get a record deal, and I get rejected by everybody. And David Foster told me I should never sing. And you know, and one person after another person that that kept getting in my way, I would figure out a way around them. And I said, this is like, like that. It's just more brutal. You've got to figure out your, your way around this somehow. And if I can help them come up with that way around, I will. But at the end of the day, it's really just... Um, Biding your time by making great art and making great music and hoping that a team of people figure out the way around those gatekeepers. Yeah, those gatekeepers. Uh, Richard, it's been a great pleasure. It's Same here, man. There's so much to ask, but we'll leave it at that. Song Talks with Richard Marks, of course, on Podcast One. Um, you know, this might actually have been the first interview I was ever nervous to do because just, it's just such respect for the, the body of work you have. Um, it's, it's just incredible, and it's been an absolute Thank pleasure. Thank you, man. Absolute That's pleasure. Very, very kind of you. Thanks, Mitch. Let's do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. Bye bye. All right, buddy. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain are. Wilson, the first guest. You are no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And welcome back. I certainly hope you enjoyed that interview with Richard Marks as much as I enjoyed uh, doing it. But uh, let us turn our attention to Ron Bumblefoot Thal. Some of you may know him, of course, from the time he spent with Guns N' Roses. But now he is in his own band, Art of Anarchy, with uh, John Moyer of Disturbed and, of course, Scott Stapp, formerly of Creed. Their new album is called The Madness, so we talk about that. We talk about some of the projects that Ron and I have done together over the years, but more importantly, we take on clickbait websites. Yes, there's a lot of sites out there that'll take an interview like this one, like the one you're about to hear with Ron, and pick out one word, one phrase, one inflection, and decontextualize it and give it all kinds of new meaning, and it sometimes becomes a little bit annoying it's happened to me sometimes where people have taken my interviews and said, hey, and, and then I'll get a publicist or an artist say, I never said that. And I go, I know you never said that, and I never said you said that. And they go, well, it's on a website. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyhow, it happens, of course, to Ron all the time. Anytime you mention the word Guns N' Roses and Ron Thal, you get all kinds of websites going, Ron said this, Ron said that, Ron said this, horrible this, horrible that, blah, blah, blah. And you go, oh, that's not what he said, that's not what he said, that's not what he said. Anyway, enough with the rambling. Let us get on to guitarist extraordinaire, formerly of Guns N' Roses, but currently with Art of Anarchy, talking all about the madness and more. Here is the one, the only, Ron Bumblefoot Thal. We are speaking with Ron Bumblefoot Thal of Art of Anarchy. The new album is The Madness. It is out now, and it is a great great album a great second album on top of that ron always always a pleasure 
Absolutely. You too. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be chatting with you again. Yes, we, we, we've done stuff in the past uh, from a KISS tribute to all this other stuff, and we'll talk about that too. Yeah, uh, so much. But let's talk about this new album, The Madness. You're, of course, bringing in um, a second Scott, a new Scott. What was that like, making that transition and getting a new voice? Because when you're sort of putting an album together and a band together, I guess you sort of want to create your identity and sort of, does this mean you have to start over? Or musically, you're just doing the same thing, but it's a new vocalist. How do you approach changing vocalists? In our case, we definitely wanted to do a kind of a redo, <laughs> start over. Um the first album came out June 2015, and it was obvious that the vocalist did not want to uh, continue. So we just had this album out, and we're scratching our heads. What do we do? Are we just going to let this wither on the vine, or are we going to move forward, find a new singer? We had a very short list of people that we thought would be right for it. Uh, first person on the list was Scott Stapp and simply reached out and two months later we uh me and the voter brothers that's john and vince guitarist drummer that really started the band uh we flew down to florida and hung out with scott we hopped into a rehearsal room with no plan in mind and just started jamming and just seeing how the chemistry was and if we had uh comfort and a vibe and and it was good so then from there, we grabbed dinner and just started talking about where we were at in life, in music, everything, what we were looking for, and we were on the same page. So the first date went well, <laughs> and then from there, uh, we saw that there could definitely be a second date. So a month later, all five of us were up in New York, and we were in a big room, just day and night, hanging out, writing jamming, just recording all the jams, and letting things turn into songs. And in that little time, maybe a week and a half, uh, we wrote half the album. It all came together. We were just jamming. It all started to solidify. You know how it starts. It's everybody's looking at each other, like, okay, how do we begin this? You know, How do we get this ball rolling? And who wants to play the first riff? Who's got the first idea? And it's funny, it was John Moyer said, okay, I got something. Uh, he's like, all right, check this out. And he just starts playing a groove, just came up with something, and goes to Vince. He's like, give me a beat, kind of like a boom, cha, boom, boom, ba, boom. You know? And then John uh, Voda just started playing chords over, just, and, da, 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 da. and I started playing this little uh, fancy schmancy harmonic thing. Dung, 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 dung. And there you go. That turned into our first song, The Madness, which ended up being our single and the title track for the album and everything. Uh, yeah, and it all just came together organically the way you imagine a band doing it. Like five guys, all equal contributors and partners, just building something together from the ground up. And I realized that that was the first time in my life. My first band was, I was six years old when I had my first band. And this was the very first time that I was in a band where every single member was there 100% and being part of every single thing from beginning to end, from writing songs to 
tweaking mixes to everything. This was the first real band, which is funny because on the first album, there was so much put out there trying to say that we weren't. And the thing is, in the first album, we weren't. It evolved into a band, where in this case, now with Scott Stapp, he brought in this structure and this unity that we could build it from the ground up and make something together. And we did. Yeah, and you did it very successfully. So so talk to me about you, though, being in a band situation. Before uh, Guns N' Roses, you were Bumblefoot the solo artist, Ron Saul the solo solo artist. In Guns, you were in a band, but from my perspective, you, you were in a band, but you weren't in a band. You were just the guy playing guitar because the decisions didn't come from you. And correct me if I'm wrong on that, but how is it like for you now to be in this band where you control the vision and you control how it's going to go, and yet you still have to defer to John and say, okay, this is my vision, but okay, well, let's hear you. Like, how is that for you to be not the leader leader and not just the guy who plays guitar? Uh, it's fine. It's what I always wanted. I was five years old. I heard the Kiss Alive album, and I said to myself, that's what I want to do. And my first two loves musically were Kiss and the Beatles. And the thing about those bands was that you knew everyone on a first-name basis, and those names meant something musically, personality-wise, what they brought into the music. That's what I always wanted, to be in a band of equals where everybody had value and everybody was a key ingredient that created the overall taste, flavor of <laughs> what you're eating. Um, I am happy with that. I don't need to be the boss. I don't need to be the controlling guy. I don't need to be the leader. I want to be part of something bigger than what any one human being could ever be. And you can only get that when you combine spirits and you combine people and you collaborate. And that's what a band is. And that's why we love bands, because they're more than a human being could ever be on their own. Yeah. No. So with that, uh, I am happy to have four guys with other ideas and other perspectives and other experiences that you can talk to them and say, hey, here's what I think. And they'll say, here's what I think. And between all of us, the way we do it is we vote and the majority wins. Like, hey, you want to do this gig? Okay. No, I don't want to. No, I don't want to. Okay. Okay. All right. We're doing it. <laughs> That's pretty much how it works for, for all of us. Like it truly is, uh, you know, Everybody, everyone has value, and we are all partners in this. And that's got to be a, a great feeling. Now, now, you mentioned KISS, so I, I want to just take you back to 2013 for a second. Eddie Trunk has his, I believe, the 30th anniversary show. Ace Fraley is there. Peter Chris is there. You come out, and you play with them. You, you do Love Her All I Can, Rock and Roll All Night. What was and that? We, did, we did Hooligan. Oh, that's right, Hooligan, and, too. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Chris, he told me that was the First time he sung that song in 31 years that he played that song. Yeah, well, they, they should have been doing that song on the reunion tour, quite frankly. But uh, <laughs> it was, you know, I gotta ki say, though, kiss it was moaning so... aside, right? Because <laughs> the Kiss fans, you, you know how us Kiss fans are—we get all all up in a bunch over nothing. But no, but but mm -hmm. <laughs> don't we though, <laughs> we right? Do. We do over nothing. They they because didn't we play. Care. Yeah, we, but you know what? That that is a very important point. It's 
I think for a for a band or or an artist, you'd rather have your fans having a discussion, any discussion, than just totally ignoring you and, and pretending you don't you don't exist. I, I mean, that's how I would feel. But well, at least they're talking about me, right? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the indifference is worse than love and hate. And true. So, um, you look over to your left, and you've got Ace Fraley standing there. You're doing lead vocals on a couple of these songs. Uh, talk to me just about that experience, because I'm sure that no matter, you know, if they're your contemporaries or you're not contemporaries or whatever, at some point, it's Ace Fraley standing next to you. What was that like for you? It was... You know, it's surreal. I mean, the whole scenario, you had Mike Portnoy's also there. You have Scott Ian and Frankie Bello from Anthrax there. And me and Frankie are like trading off <laughs> or harmonizing vocals to love her all I can. And no matter what we've done, not done anything, you are immediately a little kid again, just loving Kiss. And even though you're right on stage with them, you feel like that fan. And it's that energy, that, that life, that, that electricity you get from music and, and the bands you love. Uh, that's what it felt like. And the funniest memory that I have of it, I don't know if it's funniest, but just the, the one that sticks in my head, was playing Hooligan. Ace sat it out. He, he didn't play that one. I think we started with it. So I'm playing the solo, and I'm looking over at Ace while I'm playing his solo, staring at him. And I'm, I remember just pointing to him and just, like, mouthing. It's like, you should be playing this. Come on. <laughs> it's like, what? It's just so strange. Like, as a fan, I meant it. You know, it's like, for me, I'm sitting there playing it or standing there. Uh, but I wanted to see Ace do it. I didn't want to play it. I wanted to be the fan and I couldn't help like I was I felt like I wanted to be more of the fan than the person on the stage when it came to that like I was just so happy to see them doing what they do uh so that's I remember just the the weird feeling I had playing you know playing that song yeah. with Ace just standing to the side watching me play, you know, the song that he played on. And, and you know what it reminded me of? The best way to describe it, and this might sound a little inappropriate, and I mean no disrespect, but it's like you're banging someone's wife, and they're just standing there watching, and you're not really a swinger. And you're just, like, looking at the guy like, dude, this is weird, man. <laughs> you should be... <laughs> You should be doing this, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Ace, you should be banging this one out. No, and it's funny because you, you, you also did Parasite. I have the whole set list in front yeah, of you. You also did Parasite, yeah. Got to Choose. I mean, just a great – boy, it would be so nice if that actually showed up as a as a CD or DVD because at some point having you and Frank and Scott Ian and well, um, I know that Tony Harnell was there and Lita Ford, that you all did, did these different things and – Wow, I mean, what a, what a great lineup and a great night that might have been. Now, what, you were going to say what? There's, there's what? There's... Um, I think there is an audio mix. You know, like they have multi-tracks. They probably could put it out there. Uh, just putting that into the universe, just, just saying. You know, you, you're te- now really you're just teasing. You know, now you're, yeah, of course they would enjoy. Um, before I move on from the Kiss thing, also around 2013, 
uh, you and Rex Brown of Pantera, uh, Brian Tishy, and um, I'm forgetting the other person. Mark right? Zavon. Mark Zavon, right. Uh, how, could, how could you forget? You did the Alive thing where you did out a couple of shows and you did these Kiss shows. What was that like for you to, to, to put those together? And is there a, a hope in hell that we might see something like that in the future? Because I think that was a fun night and, and certainly something enjoyable. I would love to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a blast. I mean, it's something we barely even had to rehearse it because these are songs that you grow up on and they're in your blood. They're in your biological makeup. Uh, all you do is you get together and everyone knows what to do and plays it like they've played it their whole lives because they have, you know, inside. Uh, so we just went out and played shows and we had lot of fun it was great playing that stuff That's so we great. did a handful of shows and then you know schedules get in the way and stuff but it was wonderful and they're great guys uh yeah they really are enjoyed and, playing with them and yeah. between rex brown sounding exactly like gene simmons and you <laughs> no, being able oh to sound God. exactly like paul stanley you 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 could be kiss 2.0 but um let me move this, yeah but this all came together because of you like, right that but, band happened because of me. From you, because yes. there was the uh, a world charity with heroes, fundraising right. record. Right. Yeah, which did very record. well, by the way. A World with Heroes, which yeah. uh, is still out there on iTunes. But, uh, yeah, it raised $35,000 for, for the hospice care here. And that is something that you can never um, say thank you enough for, for everybody who participated. Because, I mean, you know the whole story. It was my, my wife's yeah. father who passed away from cancer. and uh, Yeah, so, but uh, anyway... Uh, yeah. That, so that, on that album, that, that gets me all emotional. Did, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We did uh, Detroit Rock City, and then uh, Rex did. Uh, oh wait, which one did he do again? Larger than life. Yeah, it, it was right on the tip of my brain, and then I went. And what a great! What I think it was your idea, wasn't it? Like you guys should do this live. Yes. Well, because so we did. You, you know, and, and I know we're deviating from the whole point of Art of Anarchy here, but but. L- 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 you know, I well, not on. really, because if not for Kiss, there would be no Art of Anarchy, because I would not be a musician, and John and Vince Voda, would not be Kiss is their first love, like, they're old school metalheads, totally um, Megadeth, huge Megadeth fans and, and Metallica fans, but huge, huge Kiss fans, in fact, they've bought paintings of Paul Stanley's, met him, uh, things like that, they have... Uh, you know, the, the cracked glass Ibanez Iceman guitar. You know, they are definitely Everybody needs huge one of those. Kiss fans. Yeah, I, they do. We're, they we're do. all Kiss fans, by the way. What? But the, 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 the fun thing about that is when you sent me the original version of um, uh, Detroit Rock City that you did without all the drums and stuff, just the drum machine, and I heard the voice, I went, Holy Christ! Did did he just like send me Paul Stanley's vocals with a drum machine? Is he trying to you know? Because it was so right on the money. And then I got Rex Brown's version of Larger Than Life, and I went, Jesus Christ! He sounds more than more like Gene than Gene does. Like, <laughs> um, it, it was just phenomenal, and it, it was just it was just those two songs just hit home. In fact, you know, there's 40 songs on this album. Everybody did a great version and a great interpretation. Yeah. And, and no, you, oh, yeah. you know. Um, but let me get back to vocals here. Scott Stapp. Let's get all serious now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've interviewed Scott recently, and, and he's been very open about some of the struggles he's had in life. And I'm not going to go through all a list of them, but when you were looking at singers, did that 
sort of come into the equation like, is he going to be okay with us? Is he going to be trustworthy? And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but those are, I mean, it's a business. You got to make sure, right? Uh, How much of that played into, do we want to sort of get in bed with him on this or not? Well, what I've learned in life is that people have the harshest opinions about the things they know the least about. Uh, You have to meet the guy. You have to talk to him. You have to get to know him. And you can't judge without that. That's just foolish. Uh, We got together. And once I met him, I had zero doubt. Uh, He is the last person on earth that I could ever imagine going down that path again. Absolutely. You know, things happen. Things happen to everybody. You know, this is life. Uh, it's not going to be perfect all the time, and, and we're going to fall into holes once in a while, and some of them are hard to get out of. But it's not about falling into the hole. You don't condemn people for that. It's what you do about it and how you get yourself out of it and what you do from there. And I've never seen someone more focused and dedicated and just doing the right thing and strong, uh, surrounding himself with good people, the right kind of people, not manipulators that are just going to pick at his carcass until there's nothing left and leave him for dead, which usually happens when somebody is in a compromised, vulnerable state. All the opportunists will just come and manipulate and just take what they can and leave the person for dead. Usually they end up dead. It happens. Uh, Scott, the opposite. He is better than ever. Uh, you know, he's singing great. He's got a sparkle in his eyes. He's a happy, smiling guy. We joke around. We have a great time. He's a wonderful guy. And he deserves so much respect because it's not easy to get through the things that he had to get through. And not only did he, but he came out of it better than he was before. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, I, I do have to say that sometimes I find from from my vantage point, that, that fans are overly demanding of their bands and of their quote-unquote heroes because we've all had our moments where, you know, we, we got shit on by the boss or we got this and that, and we just sort of move on. But when you do it as a, a guitarist or as a singer, they go, oh, remember in 1974? And it's like, come on now, you know? Uh, so, so Scott certainly deserves, and when I spoke to him, he sounded in great spirits. He sounded very, yeah. very confident, very happy in life. Uh, his wife, uh, you know, he has, uh, his wife obviously seems to be a, a very strong force. So, so good oh, on she's him. She's wonderful. Yeah. She is absolutely wonderful. Now, in terms of, uh, I know the new album just came out, but where are you in terms of thinking down the road? I mean, do, do you have this sort of long-term plan where we need an album every 18 months, every 12 months, every two? Like, how, how far down the road are you sort of seeing this game? Well, this has been such a tough plane to get into the air from the beginning. There's been every challenge that we had to get past, and we did. Um, at this point, I almost look at it, I don't want to plan too far ahead. You know, we make plans and God laughs. Or if not God, a record label, a booking agent, a manager, and, and a publicist. Uh, <laughs> God bless them all. Uh, you know, it's a good team, but what am I saying here? What am I saying? I'm going off, off track. No, but, you're, but, uh, uh, 
I guess we're looking at, at how far down the road. I, I guess at this point you're sort of doing it day by day, right? Because it's it's been such a, a tough launch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not that this thing is fragile or you know unstable and and you know like a thread about to snap. Nothing like that at all. It's just life happens, and you know this road has been full of surprises. So at this point, it's more of just okay, let's finish the album. Boom, we finished the album. All right, let's get on the road. Boom, we're getting on the road. Uh, let's tour even more. Let's do more. Let's get the next single out, the next video out. Boom, doing that. Uh, so it's more focusing on the nearest goals. And, and it would be smarter to just say, all right, this is our three-year goal, and let's start working toward that, and that's how you get there. Uh, but... You know, you just got to see how it goes. So we're going to do this run of, of as much touring and as much of support that we can give the Madness album. And during that process, I'm sure we're going to have some more songs that we'll be writing and, and looking at a follow-up album. Uh, but if life gets in the way, I mean, things happen. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and now that there's no like hidden message in that or anything, like I'm just being real about life anything can happen someone can get sick someone can get hurt uh you know life gets in the way right so so at this point let's just really get on the road and and play as much and and just connect with as many people as we can face to face right that's, let's that's build the madness the right now um john moyer obviously yeah. is in disturbed great guy he also did stuff with uh, with jeff tate he missed the last Disturbed album, Immortalized, because he was doing other stuff, and I think some of it was, was The Art of Anarchy. Um, where is he in terms of commitment to the band? Is he sort of all in and Disturbed takes a back seat, or, or are you sort of balancing between, okay, I've got a Disturbed tour, so we can't do... Like, how, how does he fit into all of this? Uh, well, all of us, we all have other things that we do, so it's just scheduling. You know, and nothing is not, uh, it's not a, a thing about importance or anything like that. It's just we all have to juggle. We have to juggle everything, and, and we do it. We make it work. Yeah, and, he, and he's a great player, right? I mean, absolutely great uh, player. Oh, he's great. He's a, such a, everybody loves John Moyer. Yeah, that should can't. be a shirt. Everybody loves John Moyer. And it's true. He's, he's yeah, just there, there's a, a merch idea to, right there for the band you. With. Right, that that's a merch idea right there. That that's that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, big art of anarchy logo on the front and on the back it says everybody loves John Moore. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I do wanna ask you about Guns N' Roses and I, and I'm sure at some point you're gonna hit this wall where you're just not gonna wanna talk about them anymore. You but... know what? I, let me just say this. Right. Before we even get into it. Okay. I don't mind talking about Guns N' Roses because Fans care was a big part of my life, eight years in the group, and it was the center of my life during that time. And it, it mattered to me. I cared a lot, uh, too much probably, um, to my detriment, to their detriment. But the only thing I don't like when it comes to talking about Guns N' Roses is that people are going to use what I say as clickbait because you get more Facebook impressions if you have... You know, Guns N' Roses, if you're stealing and using their name to further whatever it is 
that you're trying to further and, you know, to get right. more clicks and say to advertisers, look how much we got, so we're going to charge you even more uh, at the expense of them and me and fans and trying to twist everything said into something negative just to rile people up, get them to click, yeah. piss people off, and create a lot of drama that was never intended. So that's yeah. the part. <laughs> and you know what? I, I fully appreciate that part. And I'll tell you two brief stories, even though this interview is not about me. As you know, uh, I did an interview with Scott Stapp. And it was about... And that's a, what happened. Right. It was a 30-some minute interview, 35 minutes. There is about four seconds of Creed mentioned. It was something like, blah, 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 Creed. And he said, no, no, no. And then it became a story. And I was like, but the interview wasn't about... What? You know? Right. And another and one... And that's why I don't want to talk about it, because it's going to be made about that for selfish motives. Right. And, and by the way, I didn't even do that. It, it, these other sites take these interviews... Right. They'll grab it. They'll grab it. And they'll act like it's their own... You know, they're just reporting a story, yeah. but they completely... They twist. Make it about they, they, they completely twist it. Oh, I, absolutely. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you the other one. Um, I did an interview with Mick Jones of Foreigner. Wonderful interview with Mick Jones. It was about 45 minutes. Every, the whole history of Foreigner. Nice. And a site that we're very aware of that, that does a lot of the heavy metal news. We won't name names. Took the interview, you know, transcribed it, did a whole post, and at the bottom of it, they wrote a whole bunch of stuff about how Lou Graham was all kinds of nasty things. I didn't talk to Mick Jones about Lou Graham. Lou wasn't mentioned in the interview at all. And Lou Graham's people were upset and said that I had done that. And I went, but they, I said, no, I didn't. They go, but it's your name on that. They said, interviewed, you know, Mick Jones interviewed by Mitch LaFonce. And I go, yeah, Mitch Jones, Mick Jones was interviewed. Yeah, but, but what I didn't they'll write. do is they'll take things from an interview 10 years ago and use that quote just what? to add to the story and add background. Yep. And people think that it's current. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah. And it's still a major bugaboo between me and, and, and the Graham camp. And it drives me crazy because I have nothing but respect for Lou Graham. I have nothing but love sure, for Lou wonderful. Graham. I have never said an untoward word against him. And yet I'm grabbing all the shit because one website decided to manipulate my interview into this clickbait thing. And, it's, and it it's, creates a distrust between all the parties. Yeah. And that's the problem is that, you know, they're doing this. They get... All right, they get a hundred dollars more in advertising from someone, and they're just, just you know, they're hurting reputations and relationships. Well, and that's what people don't realize that side of it. That when people do that, you know, not only is it screwing, you know, the interviewer, the interviewee, what they're talking, about, it just it screws a lot of people and it creates a distrust and it does a big disservice because now instead of you being one of the people that can, you know, spread the information from the artist to the people that want to know, now that there's a, well, you know there's what? a barrier between that. I, I got to say, and to me this is a lot more interesting than talking about Guns N' Roses. So, but, yeah, that it really does because uh, me trying to get an interview with Lou now is just not going to happen. And it's a shame, A, because I don't get to interview somebody I like, but also B, because the interviews and the information that comes out is not going to come out now, and, and it ruins that. And, and you're right, these sites that do this, uh, if I may, they act very selfishly because God forbid that they send me a check for my work. They never send me, hey, we used five of your interviews, here's a hundred bucks. 
that's never happened. And it just, it really destroys relations. Like if we, you and, you and I start talking about Guns N' Roses and then an, an interview comes out, you might get pissed at me for something I didn't even do. Well, the thing is I know better. I know how this all goes and right. how it works. And I know what I said and I know what's going to happen, you know, anytime I open my mouth. So <laughs> I'm not going to get mad at you because what happens is you end up being a victim of it as much as anybody else because whatever we talk about, whatever it is, if someone else takes it, adds other things to it, uh, uses some piece as a title for it that's out of context and, and makes things spun really negatively, yep. uh, that's not good for you. That's no, not good it's for not. me. It's not good for anybody. But I know that we're in the same boat if that happens. Yeah. And, and then, that's how modern journalism, this is the, the problem with it, is that you know, once you have all this for-profit stuff and it gets in the way and it becomes more about that than doing the service that the people deserve. Yeah, and I'll and I'll and I'll, I'll I'll close this part of the conversation on that. That is why I went to podcasting, and that is why I insist on putting out the interviews in full, unedited, because I can always turn around and say, "No, go listen to the interview." I right. Did this not is what said. It. This is how it was said. Yeah. And this is in what context it was being discussed. It was absolutely, and and that I matters. and I absolutely don't edit any of the interviews so what you hear if it's a 25 minute interview that means me and ron spoke for 25 minutes it didn't mean we spoke for 50 and hear 25 minutes of highlights and so it, it's sort of my safety or protection anyway um so you don't edit anything like if somebody passes wind loudly as correct. they're talking it is very evident that stays in correct but wow. that's not happened yet but no yeah i I leave it in, and I think, uh, I, I think that's part of, of telling a compelling story is hearing the intonation and hearing, I don't want to say the slur, but hearing sort of the, you know, how it's said and, and the pause. And like I say, hey, tell me about Guns N' Roses, and you go, hmm, all right. Like, but, you know, that, that, those the length inflections. of the pause, the length of the silence sometimes says more than the words. But, but so that, that, that does add to the story. <laughs> In my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Who knows, right? It's all, it's all a game. But, now, um, what if someone pauses for like two minutes of just, dead silence and they just go hmm yeah you know yeah. that i mm. probably would have to tighten up but i have to say <laughs> I, I i that i'll be honest right, so that, something. I, I might have to tighten that up but so far i haven't run into that so thank god um, um boy all right so so uh, i'd be remiss if we didn't say anything about guns so let's see if we can do it without it turning into a clickbait thing that ain't gonna happen but let's go for it well, but we maybe can be positive clickbait then. <laughs> but it, it was eight years. What did you sort of learn in that? Because it is a big machine, right? I mean, it, you know, there are there are bands that play in little tiny bars, and then there are bands that play in clubs, and then there's bands like Guns N' Roses that do theaters and international and Dubai and all that stuff. What was that like for you in terms of coming in from a solo artist doing solo albums into this massive machine what, what do you learn from it what do you take from it what do you not like from it just what was that experience like on a personal level that's always such a tough question because how do you sum up you know rather you know kind of briefly uh what you learned in eight years uh but you must have learned eight you, year you must have learned most of it in the <laughs> first year though right i mean you, you when you sort of step in that first day you sort of go oh okay 
Ah. Uh, no? It, yeah, I'm trying to think back. I'm trying to picture just some of the early stuff. Well, one thing that I had to learn was uh, about message boards and and I wouldn't say etiquette, but just how careful you need to be with what you say because it's so easy for, you know, things could be taken the wrong way. And there's, that that was like the first lesson I learned. Is well, that like on the first nothing, day, because on, on, oh, on your website, it was like new guns and roses, guitars, or something like that. Well, what happened was, <laughs> all right, here's the story back then right. of what happened. Because we first started talking in 2004. Right. Uh, I was chatting for about two months with the guns camp, and, and, and I was making, you know, some pretty concrete plans, it seemed, with the guys working on Chinese democracy, uh, with management, uh, with, you know, everything seemed like it was, it was good to go and a, a done deal. And I was a professor at SUNY Purchase College teaching uh, music production. Was, you know, at that time, I was putting out a ton of albums. I had my own record label and, and distributors internationally. I was doing tours. I, was, I had a recording studio, same one that I recorded the Madness at and uh, all my albums, everything. And, and I was producing about 10 bands. I was making music for TV shows, video games, uh, indie films. Uh, I was doing a ton of teaching and, and you know, at the school, but also uh, doing clinics, things like that. A bunch of charity work, board of directors of the MS Research Foundation organizing these, you know, nonprofit events, you know, that go directly toward research and the researchers. We would visit the labs and have meetings on, on where uh, progress was with trying to decode cells and get them past a certain stage where they can learn to repair uh stuff like that i've had a very busy full complete life a complete juggling act and and then with guns uh you know i was gonna have to drop a lot of things obviously uh i told my my boss at the college, I said I may not be able to do the next semester because uh, I'm supposed, and I told him why, and you know what was being planned. So he understood; he was fine with that. He's like, "You're welcome back anytime you want on your own schedule. You're always welcome here." It was wonderful. Uh, should give him a shout out, it's Joe Ferry. Very interesting guy. Uh, Over at SUNY, where? Uh, SUNY Purchase College. He just retired oh. uh, recently after, what was it, like 27 years, something like that. Fantastic guy. Very interesting guy. He, uh, he's also a producer, great musician. Uh, he played some of the like funky, wah, porno guitar on a lot of 70s albums. He would just be in the studio at the time and and the village people, I think, was one of them. <laughs> that, That's great. If I remember right. And like, hey, we need someone to just give us like a waka 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 and one of the songs like, yeah, I get and they just grabbed him and he just ran and played it. Uh he met Jimi Hendrix on the street one time when he was about sixteen and came over and 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 uh his family gave Jimi Hendrix dinner. <laughs> 
when he was 16 years old. I mean, just interesting guy with <clears throat> just so many good stories relating to music and, and life. Uh, so I told him, I said, you know, here's what's going on, and I may not be able to continue. So from there, I went to Moscow for a week. Uh, yeah, I was doing a lot solo-wise. I wasn't on the mainstream radar. Uh, you know, this was early 2000s. There were not a lot of uh, online news sites that people could find out what was going on for <laughs> some underground musician. Uh, but I was doing a lot. Uh, so I just played a week of solo stuff in Moscow. And I came back, and I see these messages all over my phone, my, my answering machine, saying, hey, I heard you joined Guns N' Roses, and you're touring. That's fantastic. I'm like, what is this? And then I realized my boss told the students. Be well, he didn't realize that, you know, he, he meant no harm. He just didn't Whoops. realize how, you know, <laughs> he, rabid he didn't sign the people were for information. <laughs> well, well, he just... You know, it was all innocent, of and that's course. the thing. That's, and so I would say that's what I learned first is that the innocence is gone. Any emails, anything I say, anything like that, uh, people, a lot of people care. So they are going to spread the word, and things will get out. So don't say anything unless you want it to be a public statement. And I learned, you know, I remember... The road manager, Del James, would say that to me uh, pretty much like if I, said, if I emailed someone about something, you know, he would say, you know, that you're making a public statement. I'm like, no, but it's email. <laughs> it's like, come on, kid. <laughs> like anything you say, you're putting it in writing, that's going to get out there. And sure enough, people would just screenshot a personal email and, and put it out there, things like that. So... The first thing I learned is that innocence is lost. Uh, and then I realized that it's not about innocence being lost. It's that a lot of people care. A lot of people want to know. And they don't mean anything bad by it. They're not trying to hurt anyone by spreading the information. They're just satisfying all the other people that really care a lot. So you yeah. don't want to step on toes. You don't want to put out information that might have had a, a broader, more interesting way of being put out there, and I just popped the balloon. So, so you know, it was a lot of biting my tongue and wanting to sh share good news or tell people what's, you know, going on with, you know, with the band, uh, but it's not my place, and it's stepping on toes. With my own thing, it's no big deal. Uh, even with Art of Anarchy, you know, we're shooting a music video. Hey, what song? Echo of a scream. <laughs> right, right. No, yeah, I, there's more transparency, and I've always been about. That's the other thing is that my life philosophy was always about transparency, and that the fans and the band are one huge team. And I always would let them know what I was doing. I would have uh, streaming live video going in the studio while I was recording. In the past, I've done things like that and just let them see the process and what's going on and, and then make videos of, you know, while making the album and, and just letting them be part of everything.
you know, not just, you know, not just giving them the cake in the end, just letting them be in the kitchen with me and, and watching the cake being made. So that, that's what I love. I love that part of it too, not just sharing the end result, but having people that, that are interested be part of the entire process and, and just having a constant, very open connection, open dialogue, open everything. Yeah. I enjoy that. And that's uh, got to be great about it now is that you can do that. Because especially yeah. back when you first started to join Guns, the band was in this sort of mysterious point where they hadn't put an album and they hadn't really done a lot of touring and there hadn't been, it would, they were sort of in this semi-retired, non-existent state. And so anything that sort of showed there was life in the corpse got all the fans well, excited, you know? You know? Instead of a corpse, let's call it a cocoon. Cocoon. You know, right. there was development. There were there were things getting ready to happen, and you know, it was going through the stages, just not publicly. Yeah. Now, well, there you go. Um, uh, boy, we could do so much more about all of this, but uh, we've done forty. So you know what the you know what the the title is now that everyone is going to grab off of this is going to be. Bumblefoot says, innocence is lost. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm going to pull that quote just on part. No, but yeah, no. That, that, yeah, Guns and Roses, innocence is lost. That, that's what it's going to be. But at some point, I guess you just had to go, so be it, right? Yeah, you know what? Because, uh, uh, listen, I have a website in it, front of me. It's not a big right? deal. You know what? There's, let me tell you, there's, there's so much going on. We were on the tour bus before the Stone Pony show, and uh, CNN was on, on the TV, and they're saying that 70 people were just, like, gassed in Syria, and they're showing these pictures of these children, babies. How can you really, how can you possibly be upset over your own quote being put out there as a title to piss people off for a day? Uh, compared to things like that, I mean, this is real life. You know, I don't live in the bubble. You know, when you're a musician, a lot of times you live in your own little micro world where things seem a lot bigger of a deal than they are, or at least they're a big deal to you and to your business or to your life and everything. But I feel like my life is not necessarily all about me. <laughs> it's, no, it's, and, and it's just funny because when I was doing, because I always research all the interviews, even though we know each other, and, and I was looking at stuff. I have a page right in front of me. It says, Bumblefoot was angry and bitter. And then you read down, and it's just Bumblefoot this, Bumblefoot that, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like a, performing at a girlfriend's wedding. And you listen to the actual interview, and you go, yeah, okay, he said that. But he also said 18 other things that were just as interesting. And it's just... <sighs> okay, I know what you're saying about the, the girlfriend's wedding thing. Yeah, that, well, apparently... Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, it's true. you know, I don't know anyone who leaves a band and then goes to see them. <laughs> you know, especially if it, you know, you didn't leave on great terms and stuff. I mean, it's just a silly question. It uh, is a no silly question. To anyone who asked the question, because a lot of people ask me that question. Did, did you go see the band? It would just be weird. I'm sorry. You know what? And if anyone doesn't understand that, you've obviously not been in an eight-year relationship that had a lot of highs, a lot of lows, didn't end well. well and, you know, let, from let's a put distance, it you're way. happy. You're very happy for them that they're doing great. But you're moving on in life, and you want to move on in life, and you want to just kind of let that part, you don't forget it, and you appreciate the good stuff. But the only way you can appreciate the good stuff is if you just sort of... Giving it space. Right. Put, put it this way. 
How many times did John Lennon go see Paul McCartney in Wings? And I'm pretty sure the I'm answer guessing, zero. I'm guessing none. Exactly. And that you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm pretty sure Ace Fraley didn't go see a lot of Kiss Revenge shows. It's just and especially the way if you've been is. on the stage, it just feels weird. Again, it, you know, yes. it's just like I described it. It's like going to see an ex's wedding that you broke up with and, you know, we're throwing dishes at each other walking out the door. Yeah. And I think so, unless Yeah, you if anyone it, doesn't understand that, I don't feel bad about it. If they want to curse at me and stuff, fine. But you know what? But see, that's, that's what I don't life. understand. And I lived it, and I feel the way I feel, and I make no apologies. Yeah, and, and, and I have to say, you, you have to sort of understand it from that, the artist's perspective, because it just doesn't make it, It's just a weird... Right, you and, get and it. By, by, <laughs> no, but by you saying that, it's sort of like, oh, he's angry, and he's... It's like, no. But no, I'm not but angry. no, I mean, you know, again, John Lennon did not go weird. see Wings. It would just be awkward to... You know? To, yeah. It would just feel awkward. How, how many times uh, did Robert uh, David Coverdale go see Coverdale? Um, you know, um, Robert Plant go see Coverdale Page? Probably zero. It's just the way it is. You know, you you don't you don't yeah. live in the past all the time. Anyway, uh, on and it, that, it's just you know, even if you you care and you're interested and you're happy for them, you still may not go because it's just it's just awkward. That's all. And if no one understands it, they've never walked in those shoes. No, they, they don't. So take and it from someone who's in those shoes. It's awkward. Yeah, and, That's and all. I, it doesn't I, mean you're mad. It doesn't mean you hate them. It doesn't mean you, you know, you wish anyone anything Any harm. No, bad. of course not. It's usually not. It's usually the opposite. You're happy for them, happy to see them doing great and doing wonderful things, and you're focused on what you're doing right now, but it's just awkward. Yeah. And, and I can just imagine the kind of night it would be anyway. You'd be standing out there in the crowd, and you'd have... All kinds of people going, hey, man, don't you want to be up there? Hey, man. Like your entire night would just be, hey, man. And he's like, yeah, you know what? Can I, can I just stay home? I just want to stay home. <laughs> um, Art of Anarchy, of course, The Madness is out now. Great album. We need a third one with a Kiss cover on it. Um, and a fourth oh, one yeah. with a Kiss cover on it. You know it. who I was talking to about doing Kiss covers? Uh, also, uh, Charlie Benante. We were talking, we were emailing oh. just about... Favorite Kiss songs, and that one day we, you know, it's like I said, to him, I would love to just get in a rehearsal room and and just like jam a bunch of Kiss with you. And he's like, yeah, man. So can you, can you imagine you, time, Charlie, Scottian, and uh, go get Rex Brown again? There, there's your, there's your fucking. Sorry for the swearing, but there's your album right there. There, there's a power uh, foursome that would jam Kiss songs the right way. Ah oh, man, there you go. it all goes back to that. See, no matter what you're talking about, it all. Somehow circles back to Kiss. It will, and of because course now that, this is going to be the like headline. The, it's going to be Bumblefoot wants to start Kiss tribute with Charlie Benante. <laughs> anyway, I would. I would. I, I think you should. I think that's a great sort of uh, summer filler kind of. Oh, we got to have. All right, you got to have Charlie. Uh, one of them has to wear the the uh, Peter Chris makeup. One has to wear like Eric Singer. One has to be Eric Carr. Uh, no, you, you, so you, it you have has to go full blown, and, and you gotta have Tishy there. You gotta. Well, you see, I would have to say one has to be in, in the Vinnie Vincent makeup. One has to be in the Eric Singer or Eric Carr makeup, just to make it different, so you're not just copying everybody. And then one can dress like Bruce Kulick in the right. Asylum era. See, it's perfect. <laughs> oh, Ron, we've gotten way off base. Um... <laughs> well, you know how it is. We we hang out and. and... <laughs> We end up talking about millions of things. 
Now, remember the This time, might be the first... Uh, I'm just going to keep hijacking this, this yeah. whole thing. How about the time that, that you came down to New York with the class? Yes. All the students? Yes. And we met up and... and uh, There's video of that on YouTube, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to add that link. Yeah. yeah How you, long ago was that? Was uh, that 2009 or 8? Yeah, that must be uh, 2008 or 9. I had been asked by the local high school, because I speak English and stuff, because I live in Quebec, that this French high school, to bring these kids down. The, um, the teacher that was in charge of that, a guy named Sylvain, is a friend of mine. And he said, why don't you come along, you hop on the bus, you know, we'll pay the hotel, we'll pay the, your food, per diem, the whole thing. And I went, all right, sure. And they said, can you help us do something exciting for the, for the kids because, you know, you know rock stars. And I went, you mean I'm not one? No. Uh, and then I said, yes, okay. So I phoned you or I emailed you and I said, would you mind? And you showed up somewhere in New Jersey. Was it New Brunswick, New Jersey or something like that? At a La Quinta? Was that where we did it? I think so. It was, was that? It was at, oh, no, so. no, no. It was at La Quinta uh, in like New Brunswick, New Jersey. You, anyway. Okay. And you came out and... Uh, and did I bring like a little cube amp or something? Or yeah. did you have the amp? No, no. You brought all that stuff. I didn't have anything. Um, and you did... Uh, you, you jammed some Kiss songs. You answered some, some uh, questions for them. And uh, if you look up... I don't, know, I don't know what it is on YouTube. Uh, if you look up uh, Bumblefoot Jam's Kiss or something, you can, you can see those clips on YouTube. It's actually kind of funny. And, well, not funny. It's actually good. <laughs> Bumblefoot, uh, let me see here. I have YouTube open, Jam's Kiss. Let me see. It's that. Oh, yes. If you, uh, if you hit uh, Bumblefoot Jam's Kiss, the first thing that shows up is Bumblefoot doing Rocket Ride at that hotel. <laughs> rocket Ride. Nice. Yes. All right. Some- yeah, so there you go. Some A stuff. Some A stuff. There, there's, a, there's a clip of that, and, and there's another one somewhere if you keep looking. I think you're doing Love Gun or something. But, yeah, that was great. Um, that was definitely interesting and, and, and very much appreciated, by the way, because, uh, you, you know, I don't mind asking people to do stuff like that, but you, generally they look at you like you're crazy and say, no, <laughs> I got stuff to do. But you didn't, and you showed up, and... and uh, you know, once in a while, I still hear back from uh, from the teacher, and I and I, uh, you know, some of those kids followed me on Facebook, and they go, you know what, that night, and they still remember it. It still made a huge difference for them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it really did. Thank you, sir. Uh, always a pleasure, and we shall do another one soon. By the way, when you look at this, right underneath it says Paul Gilbert, Andy Timmons, and Bumblefoot. Jam Detroit Rock City. So that yeah, that was a fun one. That was last year at, at Great Guitar Escape. Escape, yeah. Boy. One of the workshops. And I love doing those workshops. Oh, I should plug it. There's a great workshop called Corfu Rock School. C-O-R-F-U rockschool.com. And what it is, is a one-week music camp where, uh, I guess I'm the main teacher there. There's There's a few... Uh, there's some others, but but I'm doing. Well, it used to just be me. I'm now. See, now I'm babbling, and you're yeah. not going to cut this out because you don't edit. I don't edit. Uh, <laughs> well, this will be the fr- this so, will be the first right, one ever. Say, so no. so Corfu Rock School is on the Greek island of Corfu. Uh, beautiful place. It happens in early July, July fourth to eleventh, and I am teaching uh, guitar. 
vocal instruction, songwriting, music business, recording, and we learn songs and we go out and play together. So I've been doing this for a couple of years. It's a fantastic thing. And, and if anybody wants to uh, have a vacation on a Greek island and bring their guitar, and definitely check it out. It's a lot of fun. See, there you go. That, that's perfect. Thank, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. We shall do a, another so one much. down the road, and, and uh, all the success with, of course, uh, Art of Anarchy. The great second album. First album was great, too, but second album is just kicking. So there you go. Uh, thanks so much, man. Have a good one. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Ron Bumblefoot Thal. I would like to, of course, thank Ron for being a guest and Richard Marks, and let's not forget Bill Leverty of Firehouse for his contribution with The Rock News. Thank you to all. If you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, please do so at Mitch Lafon, L-A-F-O-N. Also on Instagram, Mitch underscore Lafon. And, of course, you can find me on Facebook and all kinds of places. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed making it for you. And on that, I bid you a fond au revoir, arrivederci, au revoir. Bye for now. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. I'm Rob Sestrino. If you're a fan of reality TV games like Survivor, join us for fun, smart conversation on Rob Has a Podcast. The Survivor Game Changers are dropping like flies, and we're breaking down every shocking vote with episode recaps, player interviews, and taking your questions. And this summer, we'll be back talking Big Brother, plus post-show recaps of Game of Thrones. So download Rob Has a Podcast at podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on iTunes. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders, and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair, and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.